A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. Kentucky GOP lawmakers succeed in getting anti-trans legislation to the governor's desk. The bill bans gender-affirming medical care for minors, allows teachers to ignore a student's preferred pronouns, and trans students from using the restroom tied to their gender identities. Now dare you! You're going to kill kids! Their blood will be on your hands! The country is deeply polarised. Each party believes the other not just to be wrong on public policy questions, but a profound threat to the nation. At stake are the most fundamental of questions about the values that underpin society. One side says it believes in the traditional family, with a male head of the household, women who are nurturing and children who are disciplined, respectful and faithful. It accuses the other side of subverting all of that by questioning gender and gender roles and replacing personal responsibility and the autonomy of the God-fearing family unit with an anarchic, godless, self-centered immorality. So because the woke represents a war on truth, uh, we have no other recourse but to wage a war on woke. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. It's not as if there aren't any substantive policy questions to be debated, but everything seems to get swept up into the culture war, education, foreign policy, government's role in the economy. Well, that may sound like a description of the United States today, but it's also a description of the United States in the middle of the 19th century. Today, there are dark warnings about the possibility that the cold civil war between so-called blue and red America will turn hot. In the middle of the 19th century, that is exactly what did happen. Decades of warnings about national collapse came true. When the contending parties refused to accept the legitimacy of the other, Eventually, one side decided to break away in pursuit of the dream of being totally in control of their own fate. That was then. Might it also be the future? If you are a politician and you want to start a culture war, you'd better be careful because you will not retain control over it. So how helpful is it to think of the American Civil War, that great crisis of the 19th century, as, among other things, a culture war, perhaps not so very different from that of our own time. How do culture wars start? Why are they fought? Who fights them? And how do they end? Joining me to discuss these questions are two historians who've broken the mould of how to think about the Civil War era by recognising how cultural issues like gender could shape every other political issue. Lauren Homiser, author of The Democratic Collapse, How Gender Politics Broke a Party and a Nation, 1856 to 1861. And Mark Power-Smith, my colleague here at Oxford and the author of Young America, The Transformation of Nationalism Before the Civil War. Uh, Mark and Lauren, thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Mark, can you give us an overview of how 
American society was changing in the early 19th century? What forces were at work that may have destabilized questions like family and gender and the way that people thought the world should be organized? I think what is particularly significant about the early 19th century is that this is a period of rapid social change related most importantly to a growing middle-class urban culture uh, in which a certain class of women could afford to take themselves out of the labour market, primarily define themselves as homemakers, and enjoy uh, some sort of dominion over the so-called domestic sphere while their husbands uh, competed in the marketplace. It's only natural for us today to think you go to work, you make money, you come home. And that really is a product of the 19th century, that before the 19th century, you lived where you worked. There wasn't a separation between home and work. It was just life, was waking up, working on your farm, working in your shop that was downstairs. Um, These things weren't separated. And I think in the 19th century, they did start to separate. Public was different from private. And that then people had to figure out what that meant in terms of gender. As we get the the, the creep of middle class urban life in the 1830s and and, and 40s in particular, we have an emerging concept of wage work being the man's sphere and the home being the woman's sphere. And it gave women a kind of uh, influence within the home. Mm, um, But more than that, a moral power that was eventually uh, transferred um, and channeled into reform movements and a certain type of politics in which women's activity was not only um, accepted but welcome. So one of the big revolutions across the 19th century and all around the world and not just in the United States and not just in the Western world but really everywhere is a transition from a world in which virtually nobody earned wages to a world in which almost everybody earns wages. I mean Broadly speaking, that's what's happening in the long in the period of the long 19th century. And what you're pointing to are ways in which the emergence of wage work as the dominant form of subsistence for millions of people destabilizes older ideas of how households should be run. Exactly. And Lauren, the thing that we haven't yet mentioned is slavery. So what made the United States by no means distinctive, but what was particularly notably true of the United States in the 19th century was that it had this large enslaved um, population. Uh, How do we bring that into the conversation? What implications did it have for white folks, as well as for enslaved people, to be living in a society in which there was uh, slavery? Slavery was everything in the United States. There's one historian who has described it as uh, the taproot of the Civil War. The way it relates to the culture wars that we're going to be talking about is there were many similarities between the North and the South. Um, Even as the North was industrializing more quickly than the South, you know, they were very similar societies in a number of ways. But the one fundamental difference was that the South had slavery and the North did not. And that that created different societies with different values. In the South, um, again, not, you know, not all Southerners by all means owned slaves. I think it was maybe 25% of Southerners um, enslaved people. But 
that created a different society that was more traditional, um, that valorized um, a stable household that didn't want inquiry into new ideas, scary ideas, ideas that might undermine kind of the, the ideology of slavery. And I think that that creates a, a different tone in Southern society than you got in Northern society, despite all of the similarities that, that remained. Very easy to exaggerate this point, but it is, it is true that the South was much less urbanized than the North was uh, by, by the eve of the Civil War. Most people in the North worked in agriculture on the land. Most people in the South did too. But nevertheless, there the, the were definite differences, especially uh, about the, the concentrations of population in the, in the big cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia. There were cities in the South as well. There's big and important story about enslavement in urban areas in the South. But nevertheless, that is a difference. But what you're saying, Lauren, is, is something that goes deeper and beyond that, which is that the problem is a hard thing to try to maintain a system of slavery. It, it makes a society brittle and vulnerable and anxious and creates a, a constant need to defend systems of, of hierarchy and order. And, and a kind of, I think what you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that kind of any, any whiff of a possibility of, of social change becomes deeply alarming if your society is so in, invested in maintaining a system of enslavement. That's exactly right. And, and I think that it's natural to think, oh, okay, so of course, any suggestion of abolition or any change to the system of slavery would be a threat. But any change to any hierarchical system or to the way society is set up at all becomes a threat. Because if you are allowed to question the idea that men, white men can enslave people, then why not also question the idea that white men are the only ones who are, you know, by default allowed to hold property? Right. Why not question, um, you know, women's role in society? So, yeah, all of these things become linked because they all are rooted in white men's unquestioned control at kind of the top of Southern society. What's going on in the 19th century as well is that there are a whole load of radical new ideas, new ways, new possible ways of organizing society, which are arriving on American shores, which are being generated on American shores as well. How did that uh help to generate the, the culture wars that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different shades of, of radicalism in the middle of the 19th century. You know, this is the um, tail end of the age of revolutions. We have um, revolution in, in, in Europe in 1830 and then in 1848. And that means that we have radical ideas circulating, not just in the United States, but in the Atlantic world um, more broadly. Um, the French philosopher who's actually living a little bit earlier at the end of the 18th century, Charles Fourier, he's very much picked up and popularised in France after 18 to the 1830 revolutions um, and then kind of finds a home, finds supporters within the United States really in the 1840s. 
And Fourier supposes that we can kind of do away with a lot of traditional family structures and proposes an alternative, which is living in a, a what he would call a, a I'm going to butcher the French here, but sort of philanthropy, right, which is a kind of communal living arrangement in which labor is pooled, in which people worked their specializations and their abilities, and they also take it in turns to do different tasks. So the individual remains well-rounded and um and sort of imaginative, you know, they have a lot of different uh, tasks to do. So nobody falls prey to the death of specialization. And actually, far more so than in, in Europe, Fourier uh, finds a home in the United States, albeit um, he's kind of repurposed and repackaged for American audiences. Um, but this leads to utopian communities like Brook Farm, which uh, famously uh, turned towards um, supporting Fourier in 1844. Um, and we have also the Anita community in New York, which is set up in 1848, the very same year that revolutions break out in Europe. So if you are living in the United States, you are not only potentially anxious about the growth of urban centres and the market revolution that we talked about last time, which is already revolutionary enough. We also have these incredibly visible reform movements that are imported from Europe in a lot of cases. And this, as you can imagine, generates a great deal of anxiety, not only for people in the South, but in the northern states as well. And Lauren, this same period, the, the very end of the 1840s, is also often the date when we looked for the origins of the the woman, women's suffrage movement. I mean, there are people beginning to make the case that women need to be absolutely properly included in the political community. And some of them even wear bloomers, don't they? I mean, they don't even wear dresses. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Scandalous. Can't have women wearing pants. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's part of this same kind of trend that Mark is talking about questioning the structure of society. And to be clear, you know, the number of women doing this was very small. Nonetheless, they are able to generate a fair amount of buzz around the idea that women should have the right to vote and that they should have the right to own property in their own names, um, that they should have the right to divorce. And all of these things would upset not just Southern society, but Northern society too. And that's one of the things that Northern and Southern Democrats are really able to unite around is opposing women's suffrage, um, because it's a threat to all men, uh, not just to men in the South. So, Mark, let's talk about how this culture war over these interrelated issues of slavery and gender and women's rights and these other things. How is this war fought? I mean, a lot of this story is about newspapers, isn't it? I mean, the New York City is the great cockpit of the media industry in the 19th century. And this is a great newspaper reading society, very high rates of literacy, um, new newspaper technology that's being brought to bear. And these sheets are being sent across all over the country. And these powerful, charismatic figures, big newspaper editors, who are aligned with the political parties, deeply involved in the in the political world. And some of these people are picking up these culture war issues, as we might call them, and running with them, aren't they, Mark? Yeah, ab- absolutely. The newspaper is fundamental to this story. And I think in New York City, we have uh, the illustration of one of the kind of great rivalries between two publications, the more kind of pro-reform New York Tribune and the democratic New York Herald, edited by James Gordon Bennett, uh, the New York Tribune, the reformer, more, more reforming paper edited by um, Horace Greeley. 
And Greeley is interesting because he doesn't go um, the whole way of some of these more radical figures in advocating divorce. Um, you know, there are some um, r- radical issues that he would stray away from. Um, but he is, you know, bro- bro- broadly anti-slavery. Um, I believe he is in, in, in favour of kind of w- women's property laws as, as well. And what the Tribune does is it gives space to a lot of these radical ideas, even the ones that the editorial, um, you know, the editor Greeley might not have kind of completely agreed with. He'll still give them um, articles and front pages uh, in, in, in the newspaper. And this, in a sense, is something that the Democratic papers, particularly the Herald, can exploit to great effect because they can take what are actually quite fringe and marginal issues that only a tiny number of people support and then blow them up to make them the focal point of political division. And this is a way of kind of the Democratic Party painting their opponents, um, first the, the, the Whigs and later the anti-slavery Republican Party, not as a broad coalition stitching together different forms of figure, you know, some of whom are incredibly conservative, but actually as a sort of hotbed of radicalism. So it's a way of um, d- drawing a, a political vision that they, w- they would like to see to retain Democratic voters um, within, within the party's fold. So back then it was the Democratic Party and you're citing the example of this guy James Gordon Bennett, this mad one-eyed Scotchman who who ran the, the New York uh, Herald. Today maybe it's Governor DeSantis in Florida. And but in the same way, what they're what they're both doing is looking at their political opponents and and citing in a, a, a fairly extreme example, somebody who says, you know, there are 254 genders and every child in America has got to learn the 254 genders or whatever it is, and, and painting it into a picture of their opponents. Is that what you're... Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. But I wouldn't say it is. um, And and caricature and exaggeration is obviously rife, right? Um, And one case in point is anything that smacks of kind of women's rights is instantly put in the same um, group as sort of free love, which isn't kind of, you know, sleeping with whoever you want, but it's divorcing um, and and choosing your romantic partner independent of the state as you as you see fit. Right. Um, And so the, the suddenly Women's rights is kind of folded into some of these other more controversial radical movements, including free love, and also associated with a kind of sexual licentiousness and a lack of self-control. And all of these things are stitched together in these articles in the Tribune to conjure up images of sort of, and this is literally sort of the quotes that they would use, you know, orgies in um, French communes and things like that, uh, which which clearly is, is complete hyperbole. But at the same time, there is actually quite a mainstream... Um, culture of moral reform, which is rooted in evangelical Protestantism, finds a home within the Whig Party in the 1840s and later in the Republican Party. Doesn't dominate, you know, it's not it's not the only force in the Republican Party, but it's important. It's an important strand within it. And a lot of these reformers are providing women with a voice in politics in a way that the Democrats um, at that stage would have been reluctant to do. And interestingly enough, a lot of those female reformers are doing so in the name of what we might see today as quite traditional ideals. So women's inherent moral authority, um, all of these things which derive really from their position in the home, but that also gives them a type of public voice which is kind of acceptable um, to a certain type of um, of, of, of evangelical reformer as well. And the Democrats 
recoil even when they're faced with that fairly moderate tradition as well, because they don't want female influence at all in politics. And they would dismiss a lot of this as you know, what they would say, um, quote unquote, is sickly sentimentality, right? Um, for Democrats, politics is a man's game and should be played by men. Whereas the reformers, even on the fairly moderate end of the spectrum, do uh, provide women with some sort of space to speak on political issues, especially when they concern the, the domestic sphere. So, Lauren, uh, party politics in America and the lead up to the American Civil War, the two political, by 1860, the two big political parties, which are the, the Democrats and the Republicans, did then represent different perspectives on all of these questions which often revolve around gender that Mark's been describing? You know, they did. I think that Republicans were not as far, I don't know, let's say left, uh, for for ease, mm. but they were not as progressive as, um, Republic- as Democratic newspapers made them seem. And... No. Any more than the Democratic Party today is as, in quotes, progressive or as radical or as woke as conservatives would claim them to be. And it was, and slash but, it was very easy um, and it benefited Democrats to make Republicans seem radical uh, and dangerous. But I do think there is some core difference in the overall kind of vibe of both parties that the Republicans did support a what they called a domestic what we call domestic feminism. So this idea that women could have power over the home um, and, you know, men had power over the public sphere, whereas Democrats were less inclined even to agree to that idea. The idea was just that men should control everything. I think newspapers did a lot of work to make them seem even more different than that. And if just like today, if you turn on Fox News, um, it seems like, you know, the the Democrats that they describe are not the Democrats that I would even know. I think that a lot of Republicans, if they had read a Democratic newspaper in the 1850s, would not have recognized what was being described as the Republican Party. And this is a real similarity, because just as today, people who watch Fox News don't watch MSNBC other than, you know, butchered clips in order to make MSNBC look bad or whatever. I mean, people are living in separate media worlds in the United States today. And that's a feature of 21st century partisanship of polarization. But the same was pretty much true in the 19th century as as well, wasn't it? I mean, people read the newspapers that they agreed with and that then reinforced their own prejudices and perspectives. Oh, absolutely. It was totally a case of you choose your news. Um, If you were a Democrat, you bought the town's Democratic newspaper. If you were a Republican, you bought the Republican newspaper. And, you know, people whine today about the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal being biased one side or the other, but it was nothing compared to the newspapers back then. Uh, which were just ripping the other side. I would say that the newspapers back then were probably more similar to Fox News and MSNBC, but probably worse um, in terms of partisanship, rancor, language, you know. Mark, did this 
seep down into society? I mean, how, how do we know, how can we be sure that this isn't just a sort of story of elites kind of duking it out, you know, rival newspaper editors, you know, competing for, mar- for market share? I mean, was this actually something that people were kind of talking about, being concerned about in the taverns? I mean, you know, if you'd gone into a you know, a bar in New York City in the 1850s, would you have heard people ranting on about women in bloomers and and women's suffrage and all these kind of, the 19th century version of these kind of wokeness gone mad? I I honestly think you would have. And, 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 you know, this is where the challenge of of sources obviously comes in. But when you consult the private diaries of... um... For example, the wives of eminent Democrats. There's the editor of the Democratic Review, George Sanders. His wife, Anna Sanders, has um, a, a diary that's kept in the Library of Congress. And she talks about, you know, not wanting her children to grow up as abolitionists and showing them old maps of the United States when the Missouri Compromise line was, um, you know, it had sort of divided uh, the, the country in two in order to turn them away from the idea of um, the total uh, elimination of slavery in the territories, right? There's this sense that um, the, 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 the women's place might also be in the in the education of children, in turning them away from uh, radical, radical groups and, and something towards what might be described in in 19th century terms as conservatism. It seems to me, listening to you both, that one of the reasons why it's perhaps genuinely helpful to think about the American Civil War crisis as a culture war is because it helps to explain why an issue like slavery, which in many ways may may must have seemed, you would think, to a farmer in Vermont or someone working in a shop in Boston to be a fairly abstract and remote issue, uh, in, a, in a predominantly white society when they haven't met enslaved people? You know, why did people in the end end up caring about this stuff? Well, part of the answer may be, listening to the two of you, that it, because the question of slavery was embedded in all these other questions, which everybody was concerned about if they thought about them or became aware of them, because everybody has a family, everybody has experiences, has views on how their own immediate world around them should be organized and so it's the connection between these sort of big abstract questions like slavery to those private personal domestic questions that makes them so powerful yeah i think that's exactly right and i think what both parties but especially the democrats were very good at was telling voters how this affects them you might not be you know you might not own slaves or you might not be planning on moving out west But if you let those radical Republicans do this, then the next thing they're going to do is come for your property rights. They're going to come for your right to vote. They're going to come for your right to, you know, hold your wife's property or control her labor the way you want. So they're very successful in linking all of these things together to make it seem like a big, um, a big scheme, a threat coming from the left um, that even if you weren't a slaveholder, and even if you weren't personally concerned about the expansion of slavery out West one way or another, suddenly you do come to care about this very much because it seems like it's going to affect your house, your children, your religion, your community. Lauren, there's, in your in your book, you, you quote uh, a Virginia Democrat, I think he was a governor, wasn't he? Henry Wise saying, uh, we, we are no longer divided on mere questions of administrative policy. The issue goes to the vitals of society and concerns our homes and our firesides. 
the contest is not political. It is a social and moral contest. Yeah. And, you know, here is a Democrat saying that this is not just about policy. This is not a policy disagreement. This is a cultural disagreement. This is a culture war. And that if we give an inch, they will take a mile. If we, you know, allow for any anti-slavery, not even abolition, but just any restrictions on slavery, then we are admitting the other side's ability to restrict other things. Um, And they just weren't willing to countenance that. In 1856, there was a presidential election. This was the first election in which the new Republican Party ran a candidate. And that candidate, John C. Fremont, had a very famous, glamorous wife, Jessie Fremont, who was unusually prominent uh, in the campaign. The man who eventually won the election, however, uh, James Buchanan, was a uh, a bachelor, and you know we can we can load all of the euphemisms that we might want onto that word bachelor, and it was and euphemisms were were loaded onto it at the time. There's all kinds of implications attached to his his bachelor status. I mean, the the 1856 election does seem to be a very good example of a of a dramatic, intense political fight in which, although the issue was definitely about slavery. It was also clearly about gender. Absolutely. The fact that Buchanan doesn't have a family kind of leaves him open to attack because they say, well, he can't possibly care for the future of the nation. He doesn't have um, children or anything like that. But the Democrats come back on this and they say, well, precisely because he is a bachelor, he acts as kind of father to the to the union. And so there is all these sort of domestic imagery that comes up in the campaign, which I think personalizes politics for a lot of people in quite interesting um, ways. Democrats had their own divisions in 1856. Northern Southern Democrats were not in the same place on slavery, but they used gender to kind of paper over those differences and create a vision of a conservative, nationalist uh, political party that stood in contrast to Republican radicalism um, on issues of gender and slavery. The way that Democrats portrayed Republicans as, you know, supporting free love, supporting women's rights, Um, supporting abolition, the way they portrayed John and Jesse Fremont were just like absolute caricatures of the Republican Party. There's a a, a quote, this is from from your book, uh, Lauren, from a Democratic newspaper saying, the old farmers and labouring men in the country are not going to vote for the son of a French dancing master who parts his hair in the middle, a la Marie Antoinette, for president. Exactly, And, and they had an issue with... John Fremont's hair, which he did part in the middle, which at the time was feminine. I guess men were supposed to part their hair on the sides and women were supposed to part their hair in the middle. It is ridiculous, but it does kind of evoke the way uh, Democrats in 2016 always talked about Donald Trump's hair as a sign that, you know, it was thinning. That meant that he wasn't masculine. If he can't grow hair? How can he possibly be man enough to control the country? Same idea with John Fremont. Um, But the attacks worked because they united Northern and Southern Democrats around this vision of cultural conservatism. If Republicans stood for women's rights and free love and abolition, then Democrats stood for white manhood, social order, 
racial hierarchy and the United States. They were the party of red-blooded American men. And that made, at least in 1856, their differences on, you know, slavery policy seem a little less important uh, and the way they stood for American nationalism and manhood a little more important. And can I come in on that as well, just in relation to John C. Fremont? I, I'm not sure what you think about this, Lauren, but in some senses, even though this isn't a shift in democratic ideology or political culture, it's not. I don't see 1856 as a departure. But for me, perhaps there's a bit of a change of emphasis here, because in 1852, the Democrats smell blood in the water. They want to push the Whig party out, who are a very different political opposition, right? Then they are not um, straightforwardly anti-slavery, right? There's diff- a more kind of conservative party, if you like. In 1856, they're up against the Republicans. Uh, John C. Fremont, who's kind of presenting himself, he's he's a young, he's an incredibly young presidential candidate, right? He's the pathfinder. He's a Western explorer, and he is obviously anti-slavery. And so there's a more radical political opposition in 1856, which I think possibly forces the Democrats to sort of change their optics a little bit. I don't know what you think of that, because in 1852, when they run Franklin Pierce, I think there's a slightly different, you know, this for me is the sort of heyday of um, young America within the Democratic Party, which is their effort to kind of self-consciously imitate the 1848 revolutionary movements like Young Ireland um, and, and, and Young Italy, right? And so in 1852, I almost see... The Democrats embracing the role as sort of upstarts, uh, younger generation kind of overturning the old order. And then in 1856, it kind of feels that maybe the Republicans have stolen that mantle by running John C. Fremont, this young explorer who sort of does have connections to a radical coalition. So in other words, Mark, in culture war terms, by 1856, the two sides are consolidating. So the, the, the radicalism, the perceived radicalism of the Republican Party forces the the Democratic Party into a more conservative posture. I would suggest that. I would tend to agree. I think that that's exactly right. To be clear, again, the Republicans were not radical. But the more that certain people on the fringes of the Republican Party became attracted to ideas about free love or abolitionism or women's rights the more Democrats were inclined to say, okay, if they're staking, if that's their claim that they're staking, we can really take advantage of this by portraying ourselves as the anti-woke party, if you will. And I think that that was, at least in 1856, a really, uh, I'm not I'm not saying I agree with them, obviously, but that was a smart political move. Um, mm. If you're able to say all, you know, women's rights activists and abolitionists some of them did support the Republican Party, but the move that Democrats made was saying, yes, and thus the Republican Party supports abolition and women's rights activists, which they didn't. Uh, but by doing that, they were able to really stake a claim to saying we are the party of middle America. And and you said it was a smart political move. Well, they won. So it, it, it clearly it clearly did the business from their point of view. Four years later, however, it didn't work so well, or at least... Uh, the the strategy that you've just both of you just described, which held the National Democratic Party together in 1856, enabled them to defeat the upstart Republican opposition by towering on this with this kind of woke radicalism. In 1860, the problem was that the northern wing of the Democratic Party, the Democrats who were running in the in the free states 
suddenly had a problem, which is that they were themselves now being tainted with wokery by the southern wing of their own political party. Yeah, they shot themselves in the foot. Southern Democrats came to believe that they insisted on 100% loyalty from Northern Democrats. Um, And they came to believe that not just the Republican Party, which was only in the North, but all Northerners, which included Northern Democrats, were woke abolitionists, women's rights activists, and they simply could not trust them. And meanwhile, Northern Democrats, their electorate was getting pretty tired of having to bend over backwards to please slaveholders in the South. And so they didn't want to compromise either. And so it worked in 1856 pretty well, but the seed that they planted in 1856 really kind of came to fruition by 1860. The culture war that they started ended up killing them off. That's a, that's a good, that's a very powerful phrase there, Lauren. And I mean, just as the Democratic Party split, the country split in 1860, the Southern Democrats effectively uh, led their section into secession, creation of the Confederacy, this new slaveholding uh, republic, and the North responded with a war to keep the Union together. Um, at that moment, Mark, that moment of secession and how do you respond to secession, issues of gender were also central to political debate as well, weren't they? Absolutely, they were. With secession, in some senses, gender was used to demonise people um, in in the South, Southern Unionists who wavered, who would uh, still compromise with, with the North. Compromises were often dismissed as... Um, feminine in the sense that they didn't stand by their own independence they didn't stand strong um in 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 their own viewpoint right they were compromised by external forces Um, so the manly position in the south was to stand up for your rights and get out of the union because the union was undermining your ability to control your own world your own household your own state the manly position in the north was to stand up for yourself and stop having to compromise with these um, Southerners who were trying to dominate you. Yes, the classic Northerner with Southern sympathies, as they were sometimes labelled, uh, was a doe face, right? Somebody whose whose flesh could be moulded by by the South, right? Who didn't stand by independent principles, and so this association of with manhood with um, independence and lack of compromise, I think probably did contribute to divisions within the nation by 1860. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, you know, I would just amend one thing you said. I think that you're right that Mm. uh, in the South, compromise wasn't manly, that if you're a real man with a backbone, Mm. you're not going to put up with this crap from Northerners anymore. You're going to get out of the Union. I think that uh, in border South states, and this just shows how both powerful and silly gender is, that initially the position was, no, 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 it's um, it's masculine to find a compromise. It's masculine to work things out, to have a conversation between men, you know, as equals. And then it was only after, uh, you know, April 1861, with the start of the Civil War, that suddenly, uh, on with the firing on Fort Sumter, that all of a sudden, then it was manly to get out, which just shows that if you can go from saying, 
that it is manly to compromise to suddenly saying it's manly not to compromise. It just goes to show how this is all just kind of silly language to try to get people to do the thing that you want them to do. Um, But yet also, despite being silly, how powerful it was. What we've been talking about, the three of us here, is is how you get into a culture war and how cultural wars are fought. We've been talking about the ways in which newspaper editors, broadcast media, politicians can benefit from culture war issues, how they can also be very dangerous and they can backfire. How do you get out of a culture war? Once you're in a culture war, how do they end? I don't know. I mean, from from studying the 1850s, and seeing so many of the same things today, I don't know that America has ever not been in a culture war. It feels like the what happened in the late 1850s was democratic elites started this war, started this culture war. They raised the stakes. They made it about masculinity, about education, about religion, about race, about, you know, they accused people who lived in cities of being, you know, crunchy leftists, even saying that they ate bran bread, kind of like saying that somebody eats granola today. Um, Vegetarianism was actually, wasn't Horace Greeley a vegetarian? I mean, that was an issue, wasn't it, in the 1840s and 50s? Yes, I mean, none of, like, scary liberal cities, all of this was stuff that they were fighting about. They, Democratic elites started that, but they lost control of it. They used that language and started that culture war because they thought it was advantageous to them. And briefly it was, but ultimately the rank and file bought into it, hook, line and sinker, and democratic elites no longer controlled the culture war. And I think that that is is a lesson for today, that if you are a politician and you want to start a culture war, you'd better be careful because you will not retain control over it. I would completely reiterate Lauren's point that culture war is the very stuff of American politics. You know, this is not, but maybe I would go even an extra stage further and I would say, yes, this of course it's manufactured by editors. Of course, these um, focal points have blown out of proportion. The Republican Party isn't some vegetarian bloomer wearing, you know, gaggle of Charles Fourier supporters. But um, there are still fundamental, you know, the, the, the reason why this works is that the rank and file buy into it, right? The, the, the public, the people right, reading the press um, buy into a lot of this. And that's possibly because for, you know, some people may, some, some people living in the 1850s, um, there is a conflict of values going on, particularly in the way that they're lived experience has played out and this new kind of culture of reform which very much dominates the um, a certain type of bourgeois print culture number one and number two is that the republican party of course actually quite small c you know coalition of all sorts of different groups but there is a kind of you know fundamental radicalism to what they're proposing which is an outlaw of slavery in the territories and as historians like James Oakes and, and Matt Carp have reminded us, right, that actually behind this, even though the strategy might be quite moderate, the ultimate goal is is radical. And there is probably um, a, a kind of conflict of, of, of values and vision there, just as there might be today with the culture wars play out. And however ridiculous and silly and out of proportion things get, um, is there not a, a, a kernel of truth to um, 
the, the, the clash of values that people feel so strongly about. It sounds like part of the point about a culture war is that no one can ever in the end win it. The point is to fight it. It's about the political utility it provides to each party. I think for, you know, especially for conservatives trying to co-opt the center um, by portraying all of the left as radical, I think they benefit from that. Why, why win it? Why end it when continuing to paint the left as radical, woke, abolitionists, women's rights activists, whatever it is, benefits them so much. I think that another lesson for today is about the role of moderates in this culture war. I think that one thing we saw with Northern Democrats was their willingness to appease endlessly the most extreme elements in their party. And that worked for a while. Their alliance with those extreme elements worked. Um, but ultimately, by making those endless concessions, they enabled an extremist anti-democratic movement that rejected core American principles. And, you know, I was living in Washington, D.C. Uh, on January 6th and watching Republicans, you know, who who did not want the Capitol to be stormed watching them kind of wave their arms in despair and and helplessness as this radical movement that they had enabled attacked the Capitol felt incredibly similar to the 1850s. They had touched off and enabled this radical part of the now Republican Party in believing that an election had been stolen, in believing that the left was dangerous, not just to ideas about taxation or war or anything like that, but dangerous to the very foundation of America. And that now that radical movement was out of their control and would do anything to stop the Democrats from taking control. And I see, you know, that's so similar to secession. And it just goes to show how it's not just the most radical elements, the the Ron DeSantis, the Donald Trump, the, you know, head of Fox News that are at fault here. It's the moderates who let that behavior continue. I was speaking to Lauren Hammerser and Mark Powersmith. The trouble with culture wars is that it's hard to know what's really being fought over. At the end there, Lawrence set out the argument for why politicians might think they're going to benefit from fighting or starting a culture war, even though they may then lose control of them. But culture wars are also about real issues. They're not just infected. Questions about the social order are not just invented. They reflect genuine anxieties that many people feel. The danger for a polity in fighting culture wars is not that they're a distraction from supposedly more real issues about resource allocation, but that they raise profound questions that matter a lot and which can't, by their very nature, easily be compromised. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford's RAI. To find out more about our programme of free public events in Oxford or to sign up to our mailing list, go to rai.ox.ac.uk.
And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and like us wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Emily Williams. Additional support has come from Hannah Grieving. And my name is Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.